All right, let's take our Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. The timing of that was not accidental because as I started to study this passage and as you reflect on what I just read to you uh, from that pastor, um, you will, I pray, see the connection. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's been a very um, interesting week in our country. And when it seems like there can't be anything more to kind of polarize us, something new happens to, to disturb us. And I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm both shocked on one hand and kind of beyond being surprised by the unbelievable decline in discourse in our country. And the one thing that never really stops getting my attention is the steady progress that the enemy is making in normalizing what is abhorrent to the Lord. Steady progress in, in, in normalizing what's abhorrent to the Lord. And this casual acceptance of what was unthinkable just two generations ago, my grandparents' generation, the, these things are unthinkable. It should really wake us up from any apathy or indifference that we might feel. So we need to be very aware and very educated on exactly what's happening. Because one of the enemy's greatest tools, one of his most effective tools, not to give him any credit this morning, is to create dullness. To create dullness so that uh, our responsibility as believers, knowing that that's true, needs to be to go in and really educate ourselves and to prepare and to preach the gospel and tell other people about Jesus. And the more that we know and the more we get discernment out of the book that we're holding in our hands, the more the Spirit teaches us, the more prepared we'll be. Now, two potential problems with learning more, two potential problems with being educated and understanding uh, what's going on in the world. The first is that the more we know, the more discouraged we may become. The, the more we see exactly what's happening, the more we may just kind of say, you know, this is so rapid and so pervasive and so ingrained in our culture now that I'm not really sure that we have a chance. And the enemy wants us to think that, right? He wants us to think that it's hopeless, that we can't fight it anymore, that it's too far gone. So that's danger number one. Danger number two is that uh, the more we know, the more passionate we may become. Now you say, well, that's not a problem. That's a good thing, right? Yeah, but if it's um, shrill and judgmental and harsh, and if our words are, are designed to condescend and bring down, it actually hurts us. It hurts our witness. It hurts our, our spirit. It's not spirit-filled or, or fruit of the spirit anymore. It's not love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. It, it, it's just anger and hostility. And, and that doesn't help the witness of the gospel. So we've got these two issues that are going on because neither of these issues is honoring to the Lord. If we, if we react out of discouragement, then we're not showing any faith. And if we react out of anger, then it's damaging our witness. So there has to be a balance. There has to be a balance of, of being informed to be wise and to be educated and to be effective in all that we do while also being very zealously and, and with self-control being motivated to influence people for Christ. Now that brings us to this text in 2 Corinthians 4. And Paul is writing here to stir up the believers. He wants this church, Corinth, to do the work of ministry. And he talks about what's necessary to be faithful to that calling. And he also is describing the best 
approach, the best way to go about uh, being on the battlefield. And, and when we read this text, it's not going to be at all surprising that it's written to the church of Corinth. Because of all the churches in the New Testament that Paul wrote letters to, right, Corinth and um, Ephesus and Galatia and Philippi and Colossae, all these churches that Paul's writing to, as, as he writes to them, Corinth is by far, by far, the most theologically and morally compromised. Corinth had serious problems. Many of the believers there were weak in their faith. Uh, many were worldly in their lifestyle. They were greatly influenced by the religious pluralism that was in uh, the city of Corinth. And instead of being broken by that, instead of being humbled by it, um, they actually were full of pride. So for the most of the two letters we have, and we think that Paul wrote three, but we only have two, he's, he's kind of gently but firmly admonishing them for their spiritual immaturity, for their disunity, and he's reminding them that they need to, to uh, have the basic principles of faith infusing their hearts because they don't even have that. And honestly, as we read First and Second Corinthians, it, it can almost be a little discouraging because they're so uh, desperately not living up to their potential. They're, they're failing in so many ways, and their indifference is kind of exacerbating their ineffectiveness. Like, it's not that they just aren't mature, it's that they don't care that they're not mature, and they're proud that they're not mature. And the spiritual impact that they could have had, the potential that they could have had, is, is almost completely lost. So Paul writes to them, and he tries to give them clarity and insight and, and to encourage them that they need to have a commitment to the calling. So just seven verses this morning. Let's read chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we've renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel's veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus our Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said... Light shall shine out of the darkness is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. Now, verse 4, if you write in your Bible, that's the one to kind of underline. This is the pivotal sentence, okay? It says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Now, the Spirit tells us that that's the case. That's a true statement because he wants us to know that that's our challenge. And he also, I think, subtly is warning us, don't be blinded yourself. So the God of this world, he's blinded the minds. This is the verse that's been on my mind all week. The God of the world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they may not see the light of of the gospel. Now, I want to give you a couple of spiritual principles this morning out of this text that I think will, I pray, stir us as my heart's been stirred this week, um, but will stir us to some action. The first principle I want to give you is we must be informed. We must be informed and alert to what is being conditioned into our culture. 
We must be informed and alert to what is being conditioned into our culture. It is essential as believers that we guard our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus, that we study the word of God for clarity, that we ask the spirit of God to give us very strong discernment. And we have to be constantly aware of what is going on around us and what is being introduced and advanced as the new normal. Now, let me take a little time, and I debated whether to do this, and I think this is right. Let me give you five examples real quickly of just this week alone, how our culture, how things are being introduced, how things are being gradually pushed as the new normal so that there will be acceptance, okay? First one, there was an article this week about Generation Z. Generation Z is those who are ages 4 to 20. 61 million people, 26% of the population. They're also known as the I generation because they grew up with technology, mainly Apple products. And they define themselves as innovative, self-aware, resilient, and woke. Okay? They are my generation's kids. The, my kids all fall into Generation Z. They've been raised in a very divided country that's experienced a lot of confusion and a lot of upheaval from 9-11 to terrorism to school shootings to all those kind of things. Generation Z is highly opinionated. And unlike millennials, who are the generation before them, who tend to be kind of blamed as being um, you know, entitled and kind of bored, Generation Z believes that things need to change right now. They need to change now. So that's positive because they are, are, are um, looking to make things better, but it's dangerous based on what they've been taught and based on what has been pushed into their thinking and, and the convictions that they're starting to hold. So as the first generation to grow up with same-sex marriage as a legal right, it is naturally, uh, I think, conclusive that they'll be conditioned to see marriage and sexual identity as subjective and as fluid. So here's the statistic. 48%, only 48% of Generation Z kids identify themselves as heterosexuals. Less than half. Now, that means that what's going to happen and what we're going to face in terms of ministry and evangelism is going to be a greater challenge because as we teach the Word of God, and the Word of God teaches certain truths, there is going to be a pushback because they have been taught, and that has been introduced, that that's normal. Second, there was a ruling in Iowa this week where a temporary injunction was placed on the state's uh, quote-unquote heartbeat law. The heartbeat law is one of the most preventative abortion uh, measures in the United States. You may have read about this. Um, I want you to notice as you read about it, if you haven't yet, go online today and, and read about it. Just, just type in heartbeat law and it'll get you to the right sites. But notice how it's always described as restrictive and controversial. Okay, let me tell you what the heartbeat law is. The heartbeat law bans nearly all abortions once a fetal heartbeat is detected. That's at about six weeks of pregnancy. Now, once this law was pushed into, into action, it was quickly um, drew a legal challenge from Planned Parenthood and from the ACLU of Iowa, which said, and listen now, that the measure would make abortions illegal in cases in which the mother might not realize they're pregnant. I read that six times to make sure I read that right. 
Because if the mother doesn't know she's pregnant, why is she getting an abortion? But see how it just, you just kind of read it and you go, oh, okay, that makes sense. No, so they're saying it, it's illegal, but, but the woman might not, well, she's pregnant. Well, if she doesn't know she's pregnant, why she's in an abortion clinic? Planned Parenthood called the law blatantly unconstitutional. That's a quote. So to interpret that, they are saying that the founding fathers who said that everyone has a right to life and liberty, that that doesn't apply to an unborn baby who has a heartbeat and is living and growing in its mother's womb. Now, I watched my dad die last May. And I remember sitting there by his bed and watching his heart until there were no more beats. And at that moment, I knew that my father had passed away because a heartbeat signals life. But they're saying that it's unconstitutional to not allow someone to kill a child with an active heartbeat. Okay, that's two. Number three, forgive me for the content, but we need to know this. In Virginia this week, an admitted pedophile and convicted felon who spent over a year in prison for threatening to kill George W. Bush when he was president is legally able to run for Congress now because in 2016, Democratic Governor McAuliffe restored voting rights to 13,000 felons. So a man named Nathan Larson is running as an independent. He's expressed pro-pedophilia and incest views, saying it's normal for men to be attracted to underage women. He also pled guilty in 2008 for sending the Secret Service a letter threatening to kill President Bush. Four, you ready? This has been good, right? This week, Common Sense Media, which is a good site for finding out what's in movies, Common Sense Media released a study finding that 72% of teenagers are addicted to technology. It's shown in the need to immediately respond to notifications on phones. It's also shown by compulsive behavior that hinders sleep and exercise and real interaction. In the extreme, it's called problematic internet use, or PIU. Not making this up, right? The bottom line, the researchers say, are that most teens are experiencing altered childhoods because of technology, showing a slower path to embrace adult responsibilities than ever before, as well as being less likely to leave their homes and seek connection to the real world. Okay, so we've got Generation Z, we've got the abortion law in Iowa, we've got a pedophile running for Congress, we've got teenagers addicted to technology. That's just this week. And then, though I hate to talk about this, there was the whole episode with Roseanne and her kind of mean racist tweets. And now there are a couple ironies in this. The first irony is that she used blatant profanity but then she followed it up by posting about God and repentance and the Lord calling us to pray for our enemies. The even greater irony is that her show is not exactly a paragon of values. It's praised by many people. Of course, it was opposed by certain people because she had showed support for the president. But, but many people said, this show is great because it represents real America. Well, in case you haven't seen this show, her character is addicted to opioids some of the other characters in the show are a bisexual friend, a gay sister, a promiscuous daughter, a cross-dressing granddaughter, and the two sisters openly express absolute hatred for their mother who also sleeps around. Now, if that represents America, how many know we need some serious revival? Because that's being purported as representative of middle America. Well, you and I live in middle America. 
And that's what they're saying is, is the reality. Now, it is undeniable, undeniable to say that she was completely wrong with what she said. There's no question. But what is unbelievable to me is the absolute double standard of, of acceptance shown for celebrities and Hollywood and news people who use even more vile vulgarities, who call African-American members of the cabinet by awful racial slurs that I can't even say in this room, who call the president of the United States a Nazi, who say brutal things about him and his wife and his family, who threaten his life, and yet they all get a free pass. They don't lose their shows. They don't lose their media platforms. In fact, they're lauded and praised as being open-minded as they say that we need, you need to be tolerant, and yet they're completely intolerant. Now, I've spent a lot of time in that, and I really don't want to spend any more because now I feel like I need a shower. But let's just establish that none of that is right. And there should be absolute accountability across the board. All of this is, is distorted and illogical. But here's the danger. We are so used to it that we barely notice it anymore. News story after news story, and, and that's intentional by the enemy. He just keeps putting story after story. So we become conditioned to say, well, what can we do? I mean, this is just the state of society, and I feel powerless, and, and I don't know what to do. And that's his plan. And I want to argue this morning that instead of that, we need to be awakened we need to be awakened by the speed of how things are changing, and we need to be awakened by the aggressive push to make this normal. And here's the second spiritual principle that comes out of that. We must take off the blinders and gain a fresh passion for spiritual influence. We must take off the blinders and gain a fresh passion for spiritual influence. Now, if you've ever watched horse racing, and I learned a lot about horses this week, you know that horses sometimes when they're racing wear what looks like a mask. It's called blinders or blinkers. And these are designed, I, I discovered in my research, to, to channel the horse's vision, to cut down the scope of their sight because without blinders, horses have three kinds of vision. Because their eyes are on the side, in front of them, they have what's called binocular vision. So binocular by means two. So they have both eyes that, that form like a narrow, a narrow V right in front of them. They see straight ahead with great clarity. From here to the back, they have what's called monocular vision. So obviously, because the left eye is on the side, it can't see what's going on on the right. So the eye on a horse is able to kind of rotate and see somewhat behind it. So there's binocular vision, monocular vision, and then behind them, they have very limited vision. Now, when a horse runs in a race, many times they're distracted by that because as one, one trainer put it, they see everything out there from the bushes by the track to the grandstand and the poles. Some are distracted, some are scared, some are scared running next to the horses. It's all instinct. So some trainers believe that if you uh, put blinders on that you can modify the horse's behavior by limiting its field of vision. You make it only focus on what's in front of it. Now, relate this to the spiritual because everything has a spiritual relevance, right? The enemy knows 
that we will inevitably, we have to by default, know some of what is going on and some of what he's trying to do. But his ideal is to put blinders on our heart and our mind so we have a limited field of vision and we're not concerned about most of what's going on around us. We just are focused on a couple things. And sometimes we help him with this by putting on our own blinders. We don't learn. We don't listen. We're not aware of what's going on. We kind of push it aside. We say, I can't listen to it anymore. We become indifferent. We lack zeal for the Lord. We kind of lose our desire to change things because it feels hopeless. And we kind of put our own blinders on. And the more we become, forgive the illustration, the more we become a pack of horses all wearing blinders, only caring about what's in front of us, only caring about what concerns us, the more ineffective our ministry will be and the more ineffective our influence will be. So look at what Paul says. Look back at the text. Verse 1, he says, don't lose heart. In other words, don't get discouraged. Don't become dull because you think you can't make a difference. Just keep going. And as you go, verse 2 Do it with intentionality and with purpose. Renounce the things hidden because of shame. What does that mean? That means to resist sin. It means to live holy lives. It means to have Christ in you. It's Romans 12 to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, study and, and walk in truth. Stand for Christ. Pray. All the things that we know to do. Work against the enemy's plan because God's given you and me a new mind. We don't have our old mind. We don't have our old self. We're no longer controlled or dominated by that. We're no longer under bondage to it. Now we have been freed. Everybody say amen. We've been freed. We have a new mind, a new heart, a new spirit, and the spirit of God dwells in us. So renounce the old. Renounce what's hidden in shame. Don't lose heart and keep going. And as we do that, Jesus always has to be the focus. So verse 2 and verse 5 work together, and they give us our third spiritual principle. Third spiritual principle is we must talk only about Christ and not make it about ourselves. We must talk only about Christ and not make it about ourselves. The Spirit of Christ, in verse 2, reminds us that to be effective in our influence, everything, everything has to be done without craftiness or adulterating the truth to make it palatable and easy. Now, why does the Spirit of God tell us, do everything without craftiness and without adulterating the truth to make it palatable and easy? Because nobody can teach better than the Holy Spirit. I can study, I can come up with clever sayings, I can be creative, I can throw slides up, I can have bells and whistles, I can dress like a clown, I can do everything. Maybe I'm a brilliant teacher, brilliant storyteller, but you know what? Even if I'm the greatest teacher on the face of the earth, it is a joke compared to the Holy Spirit. So how would I dare to think, I can come up with a better message, I can come up with a better word for you this morning than the Holy Spirit can. He says, nope, that's not the way it works. Just preach Jesus. Plain speaking, not not cleverness, not manipulation. It's not about you. Look at verse 5. He says, remember, you're a bondservant. So just speak the truth boldly and in love. 
Not shrill, not judgmental, not harsh. Just study and prepare your defense and then speak out of a heart for people's souls. Jesus tells us in Matthew 10, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpent and innocent of doves, innocent as doves. Beware of men, but don't worry about how or what you're going to say, for it will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speaks. Listen now, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. And you know what the spirit does? The spirit always speaks about Christ. If people aren't talking about Jesus, it's not of the spirit because the spirit always talks about Jesus. So this is the one area of the race where we should be wearing blinders. This is the one area of the race where we should be narrowly focused. We're called to run the race, not looking to the side. We're called to look unto Jesus. Tell me the rest of it. The author and finisher of our faith. And that calling is for every disciple. In that passage, Matthew 10, when Jesus sends the 12 out, he doesn't say, hey, um, Nathaniel and and Andrew, you guys hang back. You're not really good at talking to people. So why don't don't you guys just kind of chill and and stay back and you can kind of take a passive role. Uh, Maybe you can just pray and and just kind of minister to me while they're gone. But, but, you know, Thomas, you're you're not really full of faith either. So let's keep you back. Let's just have a small group. And, And the real outgoing people, you guys go out and evangelize. Jesus says, nope, all of you go, and here's the thing, I'm giving you power to go. And if you don't know what to say in that hour, I'll give you the words. But this is for every single disciple. And like Peter and John in Acts 4, when we've spent time in the presence of Jesus, and we start to live under the control and power of the Holy Spirit, and we start to speak the word, the people that listen will say, those people have been with Jesus. We're powerless against that. And as verse 5 says, verse 6 says, we'll shine the light of the knowledge of Christ. Now, what is the last thought? Because the Spirit tells us here in 2 Corinthians 4 that this is going to be a challenge. That we're not always going to be successful in influencing people for Christ. So here's the last principle. We must persevere in the work even though many will stay blinded. We must persevere in the work, even though many will stay blinded. Look back at verse 4 for a minute. Because the Spirit says to us, you're going to go into this, and I'm going to tell you right now that some of the people you're going to speak to, some of the people you're going to share with, it will not be affected. Their hearts will not change because their minds have been blinded. Now, your job, church, your job believer, your job disciple, is to remove their blinders. It's to unblind their minds. It's to unblind their hearts. It's to replace their confusion with the truth of God's word. But you need to understand that that it's not always going to be successful. I need to understand that we're in a race. The race is not only to be more influential in our culture, But the race is also against time because Jesus is coming soon. But instead of being discouraged, that should stir us up to be passionate and to be uh, energized because we have God's spirit, we have his power, we have his calling, we have his word, and we are living experiential evidence of the truth of Jesus Christ. So as you go, 
go do the work. Don't get discouraged. Keep going. Focus on Christ. But know that everybody you talk to, not everybody will receive Jesus. So, as you go, as I go, we need to be active in asking the Lord for more of His Spirit. Asking the Lord for more of His power. And I believe that we specifically, and let me finish with this, I believe we need to specifically ask Him to take four actions that will prepare us for our work. And we're going to spend part of Thursday night not only praying for Pastor Pogenio in the Philippines, but we're going to pray Thursday night about these four things. All right? So here are four actions we need to ask the Lord to take. Number one, we need to ask him to discipline so that people will turn back. We need to ask him to discipline so people will turn back. The Lord says in Ezekiel 33, as I live... I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Now to preach the gospel, there has to be repentance. And we need to pray for the hearts of the people in the field to not be stony and to not be choked with thorns, but to be receptive to the good news. So we need to ask the Lord to discipline in order that people would turn back. Number two, we need to ask him to silence the foolishness of man. Boy, that one's been on my heart this week. Lord, would you silence the foolishness of man? In 2 Peter 1, after telling us to honor those in authority, the Spirit also says this, For such is the will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now, the media is powerful, and information is limitless. But here's what God can do. God can quiet those who are opposed to him. And we as believers, as disciples, can have a great effect. Listen now. We can have a great effect on silencing this nastiness just by doing the will of God. So in the verses that follow, he says, as free men, don't use your freedom as a covering for evil. Use it as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. In other words, love and live for the Lord. Love people like Jesus did. Show respect for those who are in authority. And just by doing that, people will be silenced. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't you love for, for the news not to be filled with this mess? Well, we have a way to do that. We ask the Lord to silence them, and then we follow the will of God. And God says that'll be enough. Number three, let's ask him for boldness. Let's ask him for boldness to be his witnesses in word and action. To ask him to discipline in order to turn back, silence the foolishness of man, and ask him for boldness to be his witnesses and word and actions. Ephesians 6, just write it down later. Paul encourages us to be on the alert with all perseverance and request for all the saints, to pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth. This is Paul talking. To make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel that in proclaiming I might speak boldly as I ought to speak. We need to pray for each other, right? We're going to pray for each other Thursday night.
give me boldness. I need you to pray for me. Lord, give me boldness. Paul says this is how we ought to speak. This is not a nice suggestion. Well, if you feel confident and you feel, you know, particularly kind of kind of rowdy today, you know, speak with some boldness. Maybe the Lord gave you a little extra energy today. He says, no, this is how you ought to speak. Why? We just sang about it. Oh, praise the name of the Lord most high. Right. How great a salvation have we been given? How should we neglect so great a salvation? Look what Jesus has done. The cross, the grave, the Holy Spirit, the word of God, the the body, prayer, all of it. We have all of it. And he says, now this is how you ought to speak. And if you don't have it, then pray. Pray, oh Lord, I need more boldness. And ask people around you, can you pray for me this week? I need boldness. I need to speak to people. Somebody in my life, family member, friend, co-worker, they need Jesus. And you know what? I've been hesitant. Ask God to give me boldness. And as we start to come together and say, Lord, stir us. Come on, fill us now like the apostles in Acts 4. Fill us with boldness so that every word we speak is seasoned with grace. You think God's going to go, I'm not going to answer that. I'm too busy. You want boldness? I'll give you boldness. Now speak my word to other people, that person you need to talk to, I'll give you boldness. Ask me. What does the Bible say? You have not because what? You don't ask. You don't ask. Number four, let's ask him to revive our nation. Let's ask him to revive our nation and our world spiritually. Listen, if you don't think we need national revival after this week, you just aren't paying attention. We're way, way, way past crisis stage. So let's ask the Lord to stir our hearts Let's start to cry out to the Lord. Lord, change our nation. Change our world. Convict hearts. Transform hearts. Change what's happening. And God wants to do that because that's exactly why Christ came. He came to change things. So 2 Chronicles says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways... Then I'll hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. That starts with us. Doesn't start with prayer, oh Lord, change the churches that aren't following you and aren't preaching the word and change that pastor and change this. No, it starts with me. Humble myself, pray, seek his face, turn from my wicked ways. He says, oh, when you do that, church, I'll listen and I'll answer. And I'll heal. That's not a message for another church. That's a message for this church. It's not a message for the person next to you. It's a message for you. And for me. And we're going to pray Thursday night. We're going to gather and we're going to pray for these things. And we're going to ask God to start to work and start to change what's going on. So I want to pray now. I want to pray now. Let's stand together. I want to pray now. Lord, who we love and are grateful to and owe our lives to. Lord, who has sacrificed Jesus for us. 
Lord, who defeated sin and the grave forever so that we're not under bondage anymore, so that we're free. Lord, we call on you this morning. We ask you to work. We ask you to change our hearts. Lord, we, we humble ourselves before you, and we're seeking your face as disciples and as a body. We're seeking your face this morning. And we're asking you to forgive us, Lord. Forgive us. Cleanse us. Fill us with your spirit in a new way. Because, Lord, it will be an offense to you if we try to approach your throne of grace without asking for forgiveness. And, Lord, you tell us that when we do that, when we humble ourselves and pray and seek your face and turn from our wicked ways, you will hear and you will answer and you will heal. So, Lord, we ask you to heal. We ask you to change us. We ask you to change our nation. We ask you to silence the foolishness of man. We ask you to discipline so that people will repent. Lord, even if we're the only ones doing that this morning, you will still hear. But Lord, I pray for thousands and thousands and thousands of churches to be stirred by the same burden. I pray for my brother in the Philippines that he be stirred by the same burden. I pray for the believers in China this morning that are in underground churches that they'd be stirred by that burden. Only you can produce the change. You're the only one. We have no hope other than that. And Lord, we've seen the vileness and the, and the change that is being introduced in our culture this week. And we pray against it. As a congregation, we stand before you and we pray against it. And we ask you to do a mighty work. Lord, before you return, that you would save more. We know you're waiting because you want as many to be saved as will be saved. So we ask you now for a great revival, a great movement throughout our nation, a great movement throughout our world. Lord, a great movement throughout this city. That there would be revival. That churches would not be able to hold all the people that are coming to seek your face. That you would bless every church in this city this morning, Lord, that preaches your word, that stands for you, that affirms your Holy Spirit, that you'd bless every one of them, that you'd equip those pastors, that you'd strengthen them, Lord. And that we would see an unprecedented revival in Racine and Kenosha and Caledonia and Oak Creek and Burlington and Union Grove and Gurnee and Milwaukee, Lord, that you just start to move in a mighty way. So, Lord, we humble ourselves before you. We stand before you at the close of this service. And we ask you to work. We ask you to work. And, Lord, it starts with us. So do not allow the burden to be removed from our hearts. But as we are thinking through this, Lord, we pray you'd also encourage us because it's so easy, Lord, for us to be discouraged. It's so easy to feel like the battle is, is losing ground every day. And we pray you'd strengthen us and equip us. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you for meeting with us this morning. We have been blessed by being here, by being in your presence. And we love and exalt you and honor you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.